when I first came into the realization that I would have the honor of closing out the book of Colossians with you, I kind of thought to myself, great, I have the end of a letter. <laughs> the respectfully submitted part of a letter. It's where the writer of the letter says goodbye, basically. Am I right or wrong? And how you close out most of your letters? I want you to turn with me, if you will, to Colossians chapter 4. We're going to begin reading with verse 10. But before we do, let's pray again. Father, I want to thank you once again for your word. Father, without the power of your grace in my life and the lives of the hearers today, this is wasted time. And I know you do not appreciate wasted time, and I do not appreciate wasted time. So help me, Father, as a speaker today to be anointed of your spirit. Lead me, guide me, direct me in my words, I pray. Give them power and life. Touch the hearers, Father. Open us up and pour your word into us is my prayer today. And cause it to have the effect on our lives that you would desire it to have. Because, Father, I, I don't have any desire that anyone should leave here today without being touched by the power and presence of your spirit and your life-giving word. In Christ's name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, starts out with a name that I find difficult to pronounce. I do not believe this guy was from the south. <laughs> Aristarchus. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. That's an important phrase right out of the chute. What, what, do, you, what do you learn from just the very first line is that Aristarchus is probably a prisoner too, like Paul. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers in the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. If he says, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers in the kingdom of God, what's he saying? They're Jews. They're Jewish people. Now, there's a long list of people here that get mentioned in this passage of Scripture that I'm going to share with you today. And if those guys are Jewish, what are the rest of the guys? Gentiles from all over the known world. A group of people involved in a ministry team. Can you say amen? Verse 12, we pick up. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has, he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Remember my chains. 
That's like someone signing a letter and at the end of it has PhD or some other sign. Remember my chains. This is where Paul was receiving his spiritual education at this point in his life, was in chains. It gives credence to what he has to say. Can you say amen? I think a major source of frustration for pastors is what's called the 80-20 rule. Any of you ever heard of the 80-20 rule? Have you ever heard of it, pastor? Oh, yeah. 80-20 rule, and, and I will tell you this, gloriously enough, it's not, that problem is not so pronounced in this fellowship. But the 80-20 rule is that the average church is 20% of the people in the church do all the work and 80% sit in the pew and just enjoy it. I'm not trying to, you know, scold anybody or get on to anybody. I'm just saying that in most churches, you've got 20% of the people doing most of the work and 80% enjoy the fruit of that work, all right? But let me just ask you a question. What if you got in some accident and 80% of you quit working of your body? You got injured. What would you probably end up being? You'd be a quadriplegic. It doesn't mean that quadriplegics can't live a full and and productive and beneficial life. Am I right or wrong? But how many of you realize that if you're 100% whole, 100% complete, you can produce a whole lot more? Amen? What I want to take some time to share with you about is that there is an array of individuals that are listed by Paul, and what an honor to be named in that group by a man that that people honor and love. I was just telling Michelle Day this last week, she was talking about her Bible college courses, and I'd asked her if she'd ever read a book by Watchman Nee. How many of you ever heard of Watchman Nee? A Chinese preacher who died in prison for preaching the gospel. And he wrote this big, thick treatise, I mean a big, thick book called The Normal Christian Life, and it was about Paul. He warned us that we take Paul's life oftentimes and put it up on a pedestal, and we, we honor it, and we look up to it. And, and Watchman Nee was saying, that's not what you do. That's not what Paul wanted with his life. What Paul wanted was to set an example for every other Christian out there to follow. Amen? Our text is one that you tend to skim over in your Bible reading. It's a bunch of names of people who don't mean much to us. You may wonder why God inspired these verses to be in his word, but actually there's so much material to cover that I have to, I have to curtail with God's help today. I can't cover it all. The main idea is this. Christians are a team devoted to serve Christ. Christians are a team to serve Christ. That's, that's the title of the message, the church, a team effort. Even though the apostle Paul was one of the most gifted men in the history of the church, he was not a one-man show. Surrounding him was a team of faithful people devoted to serving Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 through 18, we see the team. And we learn a lot about how God wants his church to function. It's striking that in this short letter where Paul devotes, and listen to this carefully because I had to read through it again. We're wrapping up on Colossians and we learned a lot. Amen? In this short letter where Paul devotes only one verse of Scripture to lust and greed, he only devotes one verse of Scripture to anger in Colossians. He only devotes one verse of Scripture to wives, one to husbands, one to fathers, 
But he spends 12 verses at the end of the letter to say goodbye and give us this list of names of people that were part of this ministry team. While Paul may have been like a player coach, he wasn't the only player on the team. Now, we're going to take a couple of minutes here. It's going to be a little dry. Are you, are you going to be able to follow with me? We're just going to look at what the Bible says about the people he mentioned. I can't even get all of them in there. Nympha, Nympha is very important. I'm going to go ahead and address her because Paul talks, to, uh, talks about her and refers to her having the church in her home. And I don't want to fall short and leave her out just because I'm going to give you an abbreviation of this message. I don't want to leave her out. I came from an Assembly of God background. I was raised Baptist, and I was ordained in the Assemblies of God Church, and now I'm here. Yeah, it's a strange mix. <laughs> but I think it's a good one. But in the Assemblies of God, when I first became credentialed in that denomination, I came to the realization that, and people can say whatever they want about their approach or their philosophies on the part that women play in the church, but I can tell you that half of the Assembly of God churches you see out there today had to be started by women because there was no man willing to do it. The Assemblies of God wouldn't even be out there as a force like it is today if it wasn't for the women that were willing to step up and, and take the plow by the handles and plow the ground until a man came along and, and, and adopted the ministry from her. And there were a lot of women that went out there and just grabbed another plow in another place, in a different field. So women are part of a rich history in Christianity. Can you say amen? All right, let me quickly run through this. Try to follow with me. Tychicus. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing all these names right. I'm from the South, and I'm under the influence of the aroma of chocolate chip cookie dough. So, <laughs> right here. Preach it. You got it. Tychicus. Tychicus. Paul calls him in Colossians 4, 7, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bond servant. He was a Gentile from Asia Minor according to Acts 20, verse 4, who had traveled with Paul at the close of his third missionary journey. Wouldn't you have loved to have been with Paul on some of these missionary journeys? You know, we, we say that, we say that, but you know he nearly, they nearly drowned <laughs> on one of those journeys. You know, it's like saying, do, do you want the Holy Spirit to move in your church the way he did in the early church? And people go, yeah, we want the Holy Spirit to move. Do you realize that a couple of people dropped dead? in the early church when the Holy Spirit came and did his thing, all right? So think about those things. Yeah, I'd love to travel with Paul, but maybe second missionary journey or maybe the third. I don't know if I want to be on that one, you know? All right, but he was on that missionary journey. He traveled with Paul at the close of his third missionary journey. Sorry. He was obviously trustworthy since Paul sent the letters of Ephesus, uh, letters of Ephesians, Colossians, and probably Philemon back to Asia with him. He may have been sent to relieve Titus in Crete so that Titus could join Paul for a while, according to Titus chapter 3, verse 12. There's just scripture after scripture after scripture. Later, as Paul faced the end of his life in prison in Rome, he sent Tychicus to Ephesus again, where he took over Timothy's pastoral duties so that Timothy could leave to join Paul. Where did I learn that? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 12 and verse 21. So he's a busy guy. Amen? Onesimus. 
He accompanied Tychicus on this trip. He was a runaway slave whom Paul led to Christ during his house arrest in Rome. Paul was now sending him back to his master, Philemon. But he doesn't mention that fact in this public letter to the church. If it hadn't been for the private correspondence to Philemon, or Philemon, however you want to pronounce it, wasn't from the south either, which later became public, who wouldn't know that Onesimus was a slave, let alone a runaway. Paul calls him in Colossians 4.9, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of your number. And if we didn't have the letter of Philemon, or however you want to pronounce it, we'd have just thought he was another one of the guys, one of the beloved guys in the group. But we covered his story in an earlier message. Amen? He was a runaway slave. He got saved. And what does Paul do? Send him back to his master. But he sends him back to his master calling him one of your brethren. One of your brethren. So he sent him back a free man. He had to face Philemon. But Philemon was warned about how he needed to respond to Onesimus' return. Amen? Aristarchus, Paul calls him in Colossians 4 verse 10, my fellow prisoner. In Philemon 23 and 24, written about the same time, Paul calls him a fellow worker and calls Epaphras in Colossians 4.12 his fellow prisoner. It may be that the uh, two men traded off living in the same quarters with Paul, or perhaps they were arrested for their own preaching activities. He had been grabbed by the angry mob in Ephesus and dragged into the arena during the riot there, according to Acts chapter 19, verse 29. Aristarchus was a Jewish believer, according to Colossians 4.11, from Thessalonica, who traveled with Paul when he took the financial gift to the needy saints in Jerusalem, according to Acts chapter 20, verse 4. He at least began the journey with Paul from Caesarea to Rome in Acts 27, verse 2. So he may have gone through the shipwreck with Paul. Tradition says that he was martyred under Nero in Rome. Mark. We learn here in Colossians 4.10 that he was a cousin of Barnabas. It's surprising but encouraging to see him on Paul's team. You recall that Mark had deserted Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13, verse 13. When Barnabas insisted on giving Mark another chance on the second journey, it led to a split between him and Paul, who was sharply opposed to taking a deserter with them. In Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41. It's amazing. I think that as Paul aged in life, and, and now, you know, being a little older myself, I think you mellow out a little bit. I think Paul was a very impatient man when he was younger. And he had no tolerance at all for young people being young people. You get my drift? But here, 12 years later, 12 years had passed, Paul tells the Colossians to welcome Mark without reservation. Amen? Then there was Jesus called <clears throat> Justice, excuse me, Colossians 4.11. It's all we know about him. That's it. He was a Jew whom Paul calls a fellow worker for the kingdom of God, along with the other two Jews, Mark and Aristarchus, Paul says that Jesus' justice had been an encouragement to him. If I was ever listed in the Bible, if that's all they ever said about me, I'd be enough, you know? I, I mean, my name's Carl, you know? My wife's name is Ruth, right? My oldest boy's name is Aaron. My daughter's name is Leah. My youngest son's name is uh, Nathan, right? Nathan. 
You can find them in the Bible, but you can't find me, not under this name. Amen? Epaphras, we've already met him in Colossians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. He was probably converted and discipled during Paul's extended stay in Ephesus, according to Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. He then returned to his hometown of Colossae and planted the church there, as well as the neighboring Laodicea and Hierapolis. When problems with false teachers arose, Epaphras went to Rome to get counsel from Paul, who calls him in Colossians 4 and verse 12 a bond slave of Jesus Christ and commends him for his prayers and concern for these three churches. Then there's Luke. You know, I, I, if I just read the book of Luke, I would think he was a reporter, not a doctor. Because he didn't know Jesus when he was alive, and yet he wrote a letter so long that it counts for almost a quarter of the New Testament. And he's a Gentile. Paul wrote the bulk of the New Testament as a, a, a Messianic Jew, but a Gentile wrote 25% of the rest of the New Testament. That's amazing to me. Why, why is it amazing? Why is it important? Folks, people from all over the known world at that time, different races, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different levels of education. Sounds like a church I'm, I'm familiar with. Sounds like a church I'm familiar with. Luke, the beloved physician. It is only here that we learned that Luke was a doctor. That's it. That's where we learned it. It's amazing. When, when we can deduce that he was a Gentile, we can deduce that he was a Gentile since Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus Justice were the only team members from the circumcision. So to be a Gentile, all you must not be Jewish. Does that make sense? Luke was the only Gentile author in the New Testament, writing almost one-fourth of it. He accompanied Paul on some of his missionary journeys, including his shipwreck on the way to Rome. He was the only worker with Paul near the end of his second imprisonment as he faced execution. Timothy According to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, we learned that Luke was there for Paul. Then there's Demas. It's striking that Paul says nothing to commend him. In contrast with the others, in Philemon 24, it's written just before Colossians, Paul calls him a fellow worker. We know he's a fellow worker. Here he says nothing. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, he reports sadly... Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. There's a lot said in that little sentence. Demas abandoned Paul. That's what's being said here. And the implication, the strong implication is for all the wrong reasons. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Perhaps Paul sensed the seeds of Demas' disloyalty already. So Demas warns us of the possibility of defection, while Mark encourages us with a hope of restoration for those who have failed. Looking at this roster, it's certain that Paul wasn't the only worker. It was a team effort. Can you say amen? That's the way it has to be. God's gifted every member of the body of Christ. And he expects us to use our gifts to serve him. And the scripture references go on and on and on for that. Romans 12, 3. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Ephesians 4, 7. 1 Peter 4 and 10. And when you look at all of those gifts that God can use people in, bench warmer is not one of them. 
Bench warmer isn't one of them. You know, they talk about the human brain, how we only use a certain percentage of it, a small percentage of it, and how powerful it would be if we use 100% of the power of the brain. You know, if, if let's say 20 to 40%, because all you got to do is show up here at 11 o'clock and half the body's here setting up chairs, doing things, setting things up. I mean, there's a lot of workers in this church, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Pastor and I and, and the elders, we appreciate it. And, and let's not forget, you know, elders' wives and deacons and deacons' wives and and workers and, and their wives, amen? They do so much for this fellowship. But what if 100% of the people that were here right now put their hands on the plow? Every single solitary one of us found our place. Man, how exciting would that be? So what we need to do is figure out how God wants us to serve him and get on the playing field. Put me in, coach, I think I'm ready. Amen? First point, the team consists of men and women from different racial and socioeconomic backgrounds. Or in our text already, Paul mentions those three men, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus Justice, who were the only fellow workers from the circumcision, obviously Jews. Presumably the rest of the names are Gentiles. Listen to this now. We're talking about Jews and Gentiles working together. Now, now follow this with me. The racial divide between these groups in the first century was radical, but in Christ, it was erased. In Jesus Christ lies the answer to the problems this nation face today, faces today with racism in this country. You know, when I first was told by the Lord to come to this church and, and, and be a part of this, I was sitting with him. And it amazed me to watch God build this church and, and this our pastor. And I said to him, you know, do you remember when I said to you at coffee one day, I said, you know, you just need, I dare you to stand up in front of the church and break the news to the church that you're black. Do you remember that? <laughs> just stand up and say, I've got news for you. I'm black, right? And when he did, everybody just roared laughing. A lot more than they did today. It's losing its edge, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you, it's not you telling the joke, right? Okay, it, it, it has more impact than I would imagine. All right. Okay. But the racial divide between these groups in the first century was just as bad. Just as bad. But in Christ, it was a race. He mentions the men from opposite ends of the professional spectrum. Watch this. Luke, the physician. Onesimus, the slave. Paul instructs the church to have his letter read to the entire congregation. What does that tell you? There either wasn't enough copies going around or everybody couldn't read. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm telling you, all levels of education were represented in that church just like it is today. Just like it is today. Paul instructs the church to have this letter read to the entire congregation, probably some in Colossae were not able to read, but they were on a team. So it was a diverse group of people. Can you say amen? Look, look around you. Look around you. The church is still being written. The Bible is still being written today, amen? Especially the book of Acts. You know, it's the only letter in the book that doesn't end. Read it for yourself later. Included Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, educated and uneducated. We saw this in Colossians 3.11 where Paul says that in, 
in the one new man, the church, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. But Christ is all in all. Part of the glory of the church is it's made up of different types of people. Can you say amen? Who in the world would often be opposed to one another. But because of the gospel, we're all one in Christ. You know what I want to challenge you to do before I leave point one? Find somebody in this church that you look at them. You ever looked at somebody and thought to yourself, I have nothing, absolutely nothing in common with that person. That's the person I want you to go befriend. <laughs> Is that a challenge or what? Find somebody. I encourage you to befriend people who come to this church toward whom you would not naturally gravitate. There's a, there's a neat challenge right there. You know, whenever I walk into a church, if it's a new church or whatever, if no one says anything to me, I'm not there, you know, I didn't come for that necessarily. But I'm telling you, it means a lot to a lot of people. You give them a hug and tell them you're happy to see them, you're liable to hear that again six months later. You know, when I walked through the door, you were the only person that walked to me and said that you loved me and you were happy to see me. And you hugged me. It can change a life. A hug can change a life. On Sundays, deliberately look for people who are not your type and welcome them. Why? Because when you get to heaven, you're going to be with them for a very, very long time. That makes sense, doesn't it? Might as well start loving on them now. Because <laughs> one day you're both going to have the same address. <laughs> All right, second point. Put it up there. The team is the family of God. I got uh, a job, a promotion I wanted one time. I was captain of security for the port of Anchorage. I wanted that promotion. I thought this would be neat. You know, I'm going to go do this. And I was there for six months. When I got this call from the company, a lot, lot of turn of events happened, but basically I was asked, would you please return to pipeline security and go to this place and deal with this team? We have problems, and you, you need to work with this team. I said, okay, I'll, I'll go, but what do you want me to do there? And here's what they said. I'll never forget as long as I live. We want you to go do that thing that you do. If I had more than two thumbs, they'd be up right now. <laughs> I knew exactly what they wanted. They needed somebody to come back in there and restore the team. And you know what that thing is that we do, that, that I like to do? I, I tell the guys at work, you know, I have this ministry as a counselor. You know, I'm a chaplain. I'm a firearms instructor. I run two security teams in two different pump stations. And I'm a counselor for the entire workforce and, and on and on and on. All that is immaterial. But I tell the guys this. Listen to me carefully. By the time you travel to work and spend two weeks here and a day to travel home, you're with me more than you are with your own blood kin. And if we can't get along and we can't be family away from home with each other, we're going to be most miserable. So I build the team around family concepts. Family. The team 
here, it's the family of God. You may not like everybody in this room. You may not get along. You know, it's not a requirement that you uh, completely agree with each other all the time. It is a requirement to love one another if you want to go to heaven. I want to go to heaven. Amen? Paul, the once zealous Jew, calls the Gentile Tychicus our beloved brother. He calls the converted slave Onesimus a beloved brother. In verse 15, he asks the Colossian believers to greet the brethren who were in Laodicea. These terms show us that the church is the family of God. This is reinforced in the New Testament by the truth that we who believe in Christ are born again by the Spirit of God into what? New family. Amen? The Bible all says that we are adopted into God's family. So we are brothers and sisters to one another in the Lord. Amen? You know, it's a funny thing. You can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. <laughs> you kind of get what you get, right? All right, but let's try to be the best family to one another we can be, amen? You know, I, I'm going to skip this part, but just to say to you quickly, have you ever been guilty of uh, saying, I go to church, or I, I go to church at a physical address? And it's not a building, folk. It's us, amen? The church is our brothers and our sisters. We should take care of the facilities that we meet in, amen? As a kid, I was told, don't run in church. It's like my mother used to say, go to your room and clean up your stuff like it wasn't important. Stuff was so important in the Old Testament that Dave left men behind to protect it. I don't get it. <laughs> There's some humor in that comment if they think about it long enough. <clears throat> don't run in church. We should take care of the facilities, but the church isn't a building, Amen. The church is the children of God. All right, point number three. Every team member is a servant of Jesus Christ. Paul refers to Tychicus as a faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord. A bondservant, I hate to say this again, we need to go ahead and deal with this and get it over with. You know, slavery in any, in any form or fashion in this world, the world's version of slavery isn't good. God talks about slavery through Paul in Colossians, and we'll address it quickly again. Means that, it, let's say that you're a servant of God or a slave to Jesus Christ. You're either a servant or a slave. Now, servant means you got a choice about what you do, what you say, where you go, what instructions you follow, but a slave just submits, right? That's what he's referring to, not us being slaves to a harsh taskmaster. It's being Someone who's willing to obey Christ no matter what he says to do, when he says to do it, or where he says to do it. That's that. the only slavery in my thinking that should ever be acceptable in the mind of anybody. Can you say amen? It's giving up ourselves to a God who would do us no harm. Amen? And mean us no ill will. Amen? All right, so we got that straight. Servant and slave are both used to describe believers. In this book, Slave, John MacArthur, who is an author of a book published by Thomas Nelson, that most Bible translations have mistranslated the Greek word for slave, softening it to servant. It's unacceptable. The word slave. But we've put it in right frame of mind, right frame of reference. <clears throat> but the difference, servants were hired hands. You could sell yourself even to someone for a certain period of time for a certain sum of money. But when that time was up, you were free again. That's different. That's like, that's like hiring yourself out to somebody. 
Being a slave is you're sold out completely. And you just follow the dictates of a loving Savior. Amen? Okay. Doing my best here with God's help to, uh, to condense. So the team was not a one-man show, but it was a group effort. It consists of men and women from different racial, social, and economic backgrounds. The team is the family of God, and every member of the team is a slave to Jesus Christ. Fourth point. Are you ready? Shoot. There you go. The team should be focused on prayer and the Word with the aim of helping every member stand mature in Christ. Let's do something here real quick. Go back to the passage of Scripture because i got to condense this a little bit, but we can't leave any of this out. Let's look here at verse 12. Now keep this in mind. When I look at verse 12, the team should be focused on prayer and the Word with the aim of helping every member stand mature in Christ. Verse 12 is important. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always. Now listen to me here. Struggling, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, you may stand, you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Now, why am, I, why am I refocusing on this a little bit? There's some Greek words that, that I don't care to necessarily learn to pronounce, much less struggle with pronouncing them. But there's a Greek word that we get the word agony from in this passage of Scripture. The word agony comes from this. In other words, Epaphras was being commended by Paul because he agonized in prayer for them. There were For those fellow Christians, he agonized in prayer for them. And there were battle terms that we get from these Greek words that were used that meant that he, in prayer, did hand-to-hand -hand combat for them. Does that make sense to you? That his prayer life was intense. And that's the kind of prayer life that we need to have for each other. You know, sometimes we'll go a whole week, you may not think about your brothers and sisters in Christ, so you come back through the door again. Epaphras wasn't like that. The team should be focused on prayer and the word with the aim of helping every member stand mature in Christ. Many of us in this room don't have any idea what the person six people down is going through in their life, maybe even the person sitting next to them. We're not aware. When, look, there's enough people. You may say, well, there's not many people in this church. Do you realize that there's enough people in this room that just about everything you can think of in life is affecting the people in this room. Is there anybody here that knows anybody who is going through the fires down in California right now? Anybody here that knows anybody down there? Okay, hands right there. Is there anybody here that knows somebody that was down in Houston when that hurricane struck there? Raise your hand. Is there anybody here that knows somebody that went through the hurricanes down in Florida recently? Is there anybody here that knows any of the folks down in the Puerto Rico area that were hit by the hur that hurricane? So you got several hurricanes, you got this major fire, there's something else going on. I'm sorry, I just can't keep up with all of it. But all of us are affected in some fashion, form, or way. Amen? And many prayers have gone up, many more will go up. Amen? 
Coupled with God's word is the importance of prayer. Paul prayed often in Colossians over and over again. Over and over again. Let's see. What does Ephesus' prayer mean? That the Colossians would stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. What does Christian maturity look like? What does it look like? Maturity includes being wise and discerning. Can you say amen? Mature people are spiritually and emotionally stable, marked by the fruit of the Spirit. But there is especially one aspect that weaves through the lives of all these people that are locked in, and that's faithfulness. It's faithfulness. You know, that's a, that's a question you've got to answer for yourself today. Do you meet that level of criteria? Is faithfulness running your life? A mature Christian is a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. Paul mentions specifically of Tychicus and Esmus. It's implied of in Aristarchus' life, Mark, Jesus' justice, Epaphras, Luke. The Lord wants us to be faithful servants. Last point, we're going home. All right? You don't just have to smell the cookies. You can eat the cookies. All right? Point number five, ugly truth. The team has members who often disappoint us. I love each and every one of you. And if I've ever hurt any of you, please forgive me. I'm capable. I can do it. You didn't know that, did you? <laughs> yeah, you did. We're all capable. There's a sober dose of reality in Paul's final greetings. There's an encouragement with Mark who started by failing but ended faithfully. At first he bailed out on Paul. But now he's at Paul's side in Rome. During Paul's final imprisonment, he wrote to Timothy, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you for he's useful for me for service. But then there's Demas, a fellow worker alongside Mark and Aristarchus and Luke when you read Philemon 24, but later he deserted Paul because he loved this present world according to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Also, if Paul could look into the future, just 35 years later, the Laodicean church that Paul had spoke so highly of in this letter had become very, two things, very self-sufficient and lukewarm. To the point where in Revelation it was warned that God could spew them out of his mouth because they had become self-sufficient, amen, and lukewarm. You think that don't matter today? I dare say that there are churches in this country being spewed out of God's mouth every day. Well, you say, how do you know? Well, guess what? You may not see it physically, but they're deader than a doornail. No life, nothing happening, nothing going on. You know, America still... Most blessed nation on the planet Earth. Do you know the church doesn't do well in times like that? Do you know where the church is growing right now? In places where they're trying to kill Christians. Where one day a man or a woman is faced with, I either have to deny Christ or die. 
and they make up their minds that they will not deny Christ at all cost. You know, you know what? You should be afraid to deny Christ. You should be fearful of denying Christ. People In places where people lose their lives every day, the church is flourishing. In closing, a young reporter asked Bud Wilkinson, a former coach of the Oklahoma Sooners, in a big meeting after a football game, he said, uh, Coach, he said, do you think that football, do you think it contributes to the health and well-being of the nation? And he instantly said, absolutely not. It does not contribute to the health of this nation. He said, football can only be described as this. 22 men on a field desperately in need of rest with 22,000 people in the stands desperately in need of exercise. <laughs> this shouldn't be the way it is in the church. Amen? Folks, I'm telling you, if you don't do anything but greet people at the door, I don't care if you don't do anything but... You know, after dinner on a Sunday, when we have dinner around here, you take out the garbage. I don't care what it is. I don't know. I, I don't even have this long list in my mind about it. It may be something you do that nobody will ever even recognize that you're doing it. But you do it. Faithfully. Amen? You know, some people never try because they're afraid of failure. And I'm not going to lie to you, success takes time and effort. But I'm going to tell you something, if you don't put forth the effort, time's going to pass anyway. Whether you try or whether you don't try. But you're never going to succeed until you try. Now, I can't stand here today and, and close this out in the next two minutes that it takes to close it out and, and give you this long descriptive list of things you need to be doing. Matter of fact, I dare say many of you already know what you're supposed to be doing. You just need to go do it. You just need to go do it. Amen? But how many of you know sometimes you just need a little help from the Lord? You need a little help. You know, Father, he never asked you to do anything that once you take a step, he doesn't rush you in like a flood and help you get it done. You think when it's over with and when you're done and you've done the right thing that you're going to be able to take any credit for it? <laughs> no, Father's going to rush in and help you. Amen? So all I want to do is I want to pray for me that God's going to help me do what he wants me to do. Amen? And I want to include anybody else that wants to be a part of it. So if you want to be a part of this prayer, I'll rise and I'll pray for you and I'll pray for me. Amen? I mean, who doesn't want? Who doesn't want the hand of the Lord to rest on your life and give you guidance and direction and help? I'm going to pray for us and I'm going to turn it over to Pastor. Father, in Jesus' name, I want to thank you for this time you gave us to be together today. And I thank you that your word never goes out and returns void without accomplishing what you desire it to accomplish. Father, we thank you that we're part of a family, a great big family, one that you birthed, one that you're adding to every day. 
Thank you, Father, for helping us and guiding us and leading us and directing us to be all that you would have us to be in this family. Help those, Father, that know what you want them to do but haven't stepped out yet. Maybe fear has been a, a hurdle or a speed bump in the road. Help them with it, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Whatever effort you want us to put into it to take that first step, Father, help us even there, Lord. We declare our dependence on you, Father. We couldn't take any credit or any glory for any, of, any good thing that gets done anyway in our lives. It's all you, Father. Help us to understand the concept of the type of slave we need to be for you and just be obedient. Just do what you ask us to do. And it, can't go, it can't come out wrong. Father, in Jesus' name, once again, I want to ask you for all of us in this room, thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us afresh and anew of all of our sin and all of our shortcomings. Thank you for the Lamb's book of life. Thank you for the peace that passes all understanding and knowing that our name is there. You are a glorious God above everything in earth and heaven, everywhere, everything. Once again, Father, thank you for our pastor and thank you for his wife. Thank you for blessing them and keeping them safe, leading and guiding and directing them. And we just give you all the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.